You don't have to wait for infertility to happen to be proactive about your reproductive life. Patients can empower themselves to have knowledge and then make educated decisions about what it is that they want to do, not wait to be at the mercy of their biology. Hi guys, we're your hosts Jillian and Kaylin, and this is Teach Me How to Adults, a podcast on all the things you never learned growing up, like how to buy a home, manage stress, crush your love life, land your dream job, and how to love yourself more, because we could all be a little kinder to ourselves. We're still figuring out how to get our shit together, so we're calling in the experts and the hustlers for some real talk and legit tips on how to live your best life. Adulting isn't easy, but we got you. Hi friends, hope everybody is doing great. I am so excited for today's episode because we are doing a deep dive on all things fertility with the incredible Dr. Dixon. This is a really highly requested episode and it's something that I've been really worried about in my life. I know a lot of my friends are really going through it in terms of fertility, egg freezing, different illnesses that they're worried will affect their ability to have kids. And then the rest of my friends are all having kids and getting pregnant. So for those who are just wanting to learn more about natural fertility, how it all works, how you can increase your chances of just, you know, an easy, healthy pregnancy. And for those who are dealing with or worried about infertility and proactive family planning, egg freezing, etc. We're tackling it all in this episode. And it is honestly shocking how little we know about our own reproductive systems. That is something we should be learning in school. So today's adulting lesson is going to be making up for the lack of knowledge we have around our own reproduction. So this episode really like myth busts a lot about fertility and hopefully makes everyone feel a little bit better about the options that they have. Because I know I have personally heard and a lot of people that I love have heard from doctors don't even come in and talk to us about your fertility until you've been trying for six to 12 months. And that's fucking scary because we need to be able to have like empowered information about what the process is going to look like for our own individual fertility journey so that we can plan accordingly. Because if it's going to take me years, I need to probably start sooner than expected. And if it's going to be easy peasy, then I want to wait. I'm not ready yet. So biggest takeaway from this episode is that we do have choice and empowerment to proactively plan, screen, and understand what our fertility situation is, which is so important. But we are not the experts, so I called in Dr. Marjorie Dixon. Dr. Dixon is the founder, CEO, and medical director of Inova Fertility and Reproductive Health, a full-service fertility and IVF center. She has an accredited fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She's a member of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, and she's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Dixon is an award-winning doctor and entrepreneur who has won the RBC Canadian Women of Influence Momentum Award and the Canadian Fertility and Andrology Society's Matthias Geiser Award for her leadership in improving reproductive care in underserved communities. And with all of her spare time, she is also a regular expert on CityLine, championing women's health and reproductive wellness. Aside from being absolutely brilliant in her field, she is also so lovely to talk to. I had no idea that fertility could be so much fun to chat about. And she really humanizes an experience that can be very scary and clinical. You can find out more at Anova, A-N-O-V-A, fertility.com. Teach me how to take control of my fertility, Dr. Dixon.
Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for being here with us today. I am so excited to talk to you. We've been so looking forward to this. This is one of our most asked about topics, and it's just a constant cause of both excitement and fear, I think, in, in women oh, yes. in the late 20s, early 30s. So this is really important. And I just want to start with the basics of fertility. Okay. So acknowledging that the process will be different if you're a same-sex couple or a single parent on a fertility journey for cis-hetero couples who are just yep. starting to think about their fertility journey and they don't know much about it. What are the most effective ways to plan for a natural pregnancy from like accurate cycle tracking and monitoring your body temperature, cervical mucus, or just should you just use an app for ovulation? As much as women understand the idea about contraception, people mm -hmm. don't know much about conception planning. And okay. there definitely is a limitation to your reproductive lifespan that's related to your biology, which is related to your chronological age. Okay. Mm. So the older you get, the more difficult it is to conceive. But if you're starting from the get-go, the first thing you need to know is master your cycle. Know how frequently it happens. Mm -hmm. Know how long you're bleeding for. Know if you skip months or if you tend to, when you get stressed, not have them. Mm -hmm. Because then that's an indication of whether or not you're ovulating. But generally speaking, there, you develop a cadence. Kind of everybody has their own sort of rhythm to ovulation if things are functioning normally. Okay. Sometimes people track it on a calendar in their phone. There are apps that people can use to track um, the first day of their last menstrual period. And then what it does, it gives an average over three cycles and it predicts when your next one should be. Okay. Okay. So your menstrual cycle is divided into your follicular phase where you grow an egg. Mm -hmm. And then once you've released it, it's called the luteal phase. When you're releasing an egg, that's ovulation. That's your money shot, your money moment of the month. Okay. Yeah. The first half of your cycle for most women is variable. So not everybody has a perfect 28-day cycle. Some people say, mm -hmm. well, my cycles are 35 days. The second half of your cycle, that luteal phase, should be fixed at 14 days. Mm -hmm. So if your cycle is every 35 days, subtract 14 from 35, day 21 is your ovulation date. Okay? Ah, if I know you, that. There you go. That's the point of me. Yeah. <laughs> if your cycles are 28 days, subtract 14 from that, your ovulation date is the 14th. Okay. Mm. So that's sort of the average cycle that people ovulate around cycle day 14. Okay. Day number one is your first day of full flow. And you plan it if you're a, a cis heterosexual couple, you're planning intercourse for about three days in a row around cycle day 14, 15, and 16, okay? And every now, day is a good frequency during that window? Yeah, three days straight, as long as the sperm yeah. is fine, right? Yeah. So if the like sperm a good is reserve. <laughs> yeah. if there's a good reserve. And the difference, remember biology, the difference between ovaries and testicles is that ovaries are egg storage units, testicles are sperm production factories. So, you know, the, what we do through our lifespan that can compromise our eggs, once we do something bad, if it impacts our ovarian reserve, we can't rehabilitate, resuscitate, rejuvenate, get new eggs. So what we do to our bodies is important. Okay, mm. It's always important. It's important to men too. They drink, smoke, do whatever. Yeah. But they can knock out sperm. Yeah. Three months later, they make brand new sperm. We never make brand new eggs. We're born with a total number of eggs that we should have. So when we're talking about if you're planning it, know that the second half of your cycle is fixed. You can use an app. You can even pee on a stick, like an LH predictor stick. LH mm. is that surge of luteinizing hormone 
that happens to predict your ovulation right before ovulation. It uh-huh. antecedes ovulation. So they have, you can get over the counter, you can pee on a stick, their ovulation predictor kits. Right. And what they do is you start at the beginning, it'll tell you the boxes are a little bit different, but you can start in the beginning of your cycle. It tells you after day number five, pee on a stick every day. And then it, it notices the amount in your urine so that when you actually have that surge, as I said, that little peak of LH that surges right before you ovulate, yeah. it will be able to calculate that. Uh-huh. And then and then it tells you, oh, okay, now you're surging, have sex for three days. Okay. And usually when you're peeing on the stick for the LH predictor, you're doing it first thing in the morning where your urine is concentrated and you haven't voided all night long so right. that it will be able to detect the right amount of LH in your urine. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. And, and know your body, right? So once you've ovulated, you'll start having signs, right? So your breasts get tender. That's mm-hmm. showing the progesterone is around. That only happens after you've ovulated, right? Right. And sometimes right before your period, because you've had progesterone around for that whole second half of your cycle. People do look at mucus mid-cycle because you get that long egg whitey mucus yeah. right as you're ovulating because it's a reflection of how much estrogen is around. You also will have an increase in your libido at the right time because your body feels like having sex because of the level yeah. of estrogen that triggers yeah. that LH surge. So there are all kinds of things. If you are really in tune with your body, you can kind of know when it's happening. Mm-hmm. But then the other option for people who are anxious or who don't have the ability to stay on top of something every single day is to see your family doctor and get a referral to a specialist who will do what's called a diagnostic cycle just to say, yeah, everything's good or, oh, wait a second, something's a little bit off. Maybe you need some help. Ah, And you you can do that in advance because I feel like especially in the Canadian healthcare system, a struggle that I'm seeing amongst a lot of my friend group is that when you seek something like that from a doctor, you're told, well, you have to be trying for six months, really, before we're going to give you any sort of referrals. That's fake news. Is it? Okay, I'm <laughs> so glad to hear news. that. <laughs> and furthermore, there you could go online, even for us at Innova, because we've heard that. That's a yeah. barrier to accessing care. And that's yeah. a bugbear for me. Puts a bee in my bonnet. It pisses because, me off. <laughs> right. I'm being politically correct with my choice yeah. of language. Yeah. But when someone says that they are interested in finding out more about their ovulation ability, their fertility ability, their fertility baseline, their ability to conceive and have a family, no matter what age they are, if they express that interest, they should be able to see a specialist like me. You don't have yes. to wait for infertility to happen to be proactive about your reproductive life. Okay. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> I should probably actually tell you. So for Anova Fertility, for us, we've established a system so that if you're interested in having your fertility ability assessed, you can actually go to our website, book I, either I have a referral or I don't have a referral. If you don't have uh-huh. a referral, we have a process by which you can then see a physician and okay. then get referred on immediately so you don't have to wait. But the typical definition of infertility is 12 months of trying unprotected intercourse at the right time without having conceived okay and is that under a certain age or is that just blanket that is it's supposed to be the blanket but what we understand is that i've explained that age has a significant impact on your fertility ability so -hmm. what i recommend is under 30 you might try the 12 months between 30 and 35 six months max okay and after 35 just ask for a referral. Just go. Just, just go. Pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> a billion percent. Because at 35, you're considered advanced maternal age. I'm saying all of these things by virtue of the fact that we have moved into a shared care model of healthcare provision. 
in Canada, which means that patients can empower themselves to have knowledge and then make educated decisions about what it is that they want to do, not wait to be at the mercy of their biology and not wait to find a physician who will refer them and not wait to figure out how to pee on a stick and feel okay that you're doing it right so that you don't need a specialist. If you have anxiety Mm. about being pregnant, if you want, if having your own genetic progeny is of primordial importance to you, ask for a referral to a specialist who can do some of the explaining like I'm doing today in a transparent way so that you can make empowered decisions about what you want to do about your procreation. Fuck yes. (laughs) (laughs) You said it, but yes, preach, baby, preach. That's really, it just feels good to hear that because I I have been specifically told and have had friends be specifically told like you need to have tried for six months before we're going to start giving you referrals. So this is just really good to know. And I'm so glad to hear that clinics like yours have the kind of bypass of that. I think that's really, really important. And there's so much anxiety around fertility these days. It's hard to plan when you're like, okay, well, if I were to have a really seamless fertility experience, I would wait a few years. But what if I don't? Like maybe I need to get Bingo. ahead of it. And so how can we plan without knowing? Because it's, it could change everything. So this empowerment over our bodies and our, our knowledge of our fertility is so important. And just to back up for, for a minute, in terms of just the, the natural fertility process, how far in advance should someone get off birth control before they try to conceive? Are there kind of timelines surrounding that? You can get off birth control the month before and try the subsequent month when you get a period. Okay. Okay. But everyone's a bit different. Some women will start ovulating immediately after they stop the pill. And as soon as they ovulate, they have an opportunity to conceive. Some mm-hmm. women won't start resume ovulation spontaneously for months after stopping the pill. It's a little bit different person to person. But generally speaking, you stop the pill. Yeah. And the next month you can try. It's just to determine what that cadence of ovulation will be because you have so long held off ovulation. So right. every woman is a little bit different. And historically, like things like Depo-Provera, for example, when people got the shot for mm-hmm. birth control, it took a longer time to resume ovulation. Now with the oral contraceptives and the patches and rings and things, it's usually the next month. And is, is that the same case with IUDs? Yeah, IUDs as well. Yeah. So you take okay. out the IUD as soon as IUDs work really by locally um, causing a, a, a reaction that would be not producive or conducive to implantation. And then also the low level of, of progesterone that's secreted from these makes the lining thin. So it would be inhospitable mm-hmm. to implantation. So as soon as you take it out, there's an opportunity again. You're ovulating. It's just, it makes the garden not grow. Love that. Poetic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's really good to know. And we've talked about the right you know, kind of timelines of when to seek help, which could be immediately six months yeah. if you're over 35 or over 30. Uh, um, yeah. And also if you have other medical conditions that you know might yeah. have compromised. So if you, as a teenager, had a large cyst removed mm-hmm. and you were told that you might have some issues with your fertility, if you have really painful periods, you might have a diagnosis of endometriosis, which mm-hmm. can be headed at the pass. If you see someone early enough that can do an assessment and evaluation and see sort of where you stand, or if you've had a history of irregular menses, those are the circumstances in which you it doesn't make sense for you to start trying because you know already at baseline there are confounders that are going yes. to confuse your circumstance. You're not straightforward, right? Yeah. And so yeah. you want to know where you are at baseline. And fertility medicine like medicine, like life, is based on data. Mm-hmm. And so we can actually do a data capture of your fertility ability at any point 
in your reproductive lifespan so that we can sort of help you to predict and plan proactively when you start to plan to have a family. Okay, so let's talk about that kind of proactive family planning. What panels and tests are possible to get early on in the beginning of the journey to better grasp your fertility? Okay, so there are blood tests and there are ultrasound tests. Think about blood markers. So one of them is AMH, anti-mullerian hormone. Anti-mullerian hormone is sort of like what they say in the lay press, what's your fertility number? And it uh, is measured in picomoles per liter or in nanograms per deciliter. And so you have to know the units of measure because if you get a value with one, it's not, you have to multiply it by seven to get the other. So one could look really bad and one could look really good. So you have to know the units of measure by the time you're seeing the doctor, the doctor needs to interpret it appropriately. But it's secreted by, remember I said, we're born with a certain number of eggs in our ovaries and those little, that population of ovaries, uh, of eggs in the ovaries that sits there secretes from the granulosa cells, this anti-mullerian hormone. And so as the population of eggs wanes, the amount goes down. So you start off in your life high, then it goes Mm -hmm. down to intermediate, then it goes down into the low level, and then it goes down into very low level. Mm -hmm. After it goes into the very low level, it goes down to zero, that we call menopause, the average age is 51, okay? Okay. If I was to get one marker of ovarian reserve from every woman that could predict how they do from a fertility perspective, it would be the AMH. Got it. So if someone... someone presents with it in their low ovarian reserve range at the age of 30, that's concerning. It diminishes at a certain cadence and rate over a lifespan. Average age of menopause is 51, which is where it goes down into to zero. In your late 40s, it's single digits. In your early 40s, it could be low tens type thing. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. gauge that as fertility specialists and reproductive specialists based on, okay, so you're a 30-year-old with an AMH that's in the low ovarian reserve single digit is, you need to do something about your egg reserve now. Okay. Whereas if you're average, then, you know, you have a conversation, you look like you're average. No one can predict. It looks like it's going to go down by this. You're going to reach menopause at this age based on your AMH, none of that. But what we know is if you're in the normal range for your age and stage, or if you're abnormally advanced in your ovarian aging, by virtue of diminishing ovarian reserve, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's represented in your AMH, okay? That's one. The second marker is what's called an antral follicle count. Antral follicle count is an ultrasound marker that measures all the little potential eggs in your ovaries at the beginning of a cycle. So imagine runners in a race. At the beginning of the race, there might be 13 runners. Only one reaches the finish line every month. That's ovulation. Sometimes Mm -hmm. two, that would be twins, okay? Okay. So we need to see that number to be 13 or greater at baseline to feel like you have a healthy cohort every month. Okay. Uh, when you're younger, you might start off with 30 at baseline. By the time you're around menopause, you'll have four at baseline. Okay. Okay. So that's the second marker. Those are two quantity markers. The third one is a quality marker, and that is called follicle stimulating hormone. It comes from the pituitary gland in the brain, mm-hmm. and it uh, is secreted into the bloodstream, binds to receptors on the ovaries where the eggs are, and it kickstarts the process to ovulation. And then through the month, more and more gets secreted into the bloodstream at different frequency and amplitudes until the LH surge and ovulation happens. Okay. okay. Your FSH at the beginning of the month to kickstart that process to ovulation should be low. This is where lower is better. So it should be under 10 million international units per liter. Okay. Uh, okay. Menopause, it goes up over 100. That's when your brain is screaming at your ovaries. Your ovaries aren't picking up the phone. 
Okay. Mm. So we can use that to determine the quality of the eggs in the ovary. So that, that triad of AMH, antifocal count, and FSH is sort of how we look at the data for your ovarian reserve assessment. It's what we look at when we're doing an egg freezing consultation, for example. Mm-hmm. When patients come in, they're like, I want to see where I'm at. Either say you're good for your age and stage or you're not so good for your age and stage. And we create a protocol to freeze eggs based on those numbers. It's all data. Anybody yeah. that says they do a standard thing for somebody at a particular age is not using the science to inform their decision-making process. Mm. Okay. So these tests are really important to, to map out the course of action. Absolutely. Because what you write to stimulate ovaries for egg freezing, for example, will vary depending on those variables. Yeah. So yeah. if someone has bad parameters, you're going to use a higher dose of medications and you might recommend two cycles of freezing. Right. If someone has a, a lower reserve or perfect reserve, then you'll say we should be one and done, get it frozen and move on your way. And what lifestyle factors can help increase natural fertility and boost egg quality from like a nutrition supplement stress acupuncture perspective? It's sort of like life. It, it, it's a bit, it's not counterintuitive in any which way. So things yeah. that you do that are good for you are exercise regularly. Mm-hmm. So there are studies, it's counterintuitive. People are always like, oh, I'm trying to get pregnant. I'm going to stop exercising. That's mm-hmm. not it. You want blood flow to your muscles is blood flow to your organs, internal organs. Our internal organs of, of choice are the ovaries and the uterus. Yeah. So exercise, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise daily okay. is actually good for you from a fertility perspective. So don't stop exercising. Number two, diet wise, that Mediterranean low glycemic index diet mm-hmm. is ideal for fertility. So low glycemic index, things that make your blood sugar spike are high on the glycemic index. So even in fruits and vegetables, you can have things that are high on the glycemic index. Okay. So mm-hmm. a diet that's rich in protein. So, you know, poultry, fish, beef, whatnot, and then green leafies, green leafies, broccoli, kale, spinach, those things. Also, uh, folic acid rich, folate rich, because that's important for pregnancy, okay, Mm because we don't have really great diets in North America. And you eat like a small child, you're not supposed to eat like a big meal for breakfast and a big meal for lunch, because that as well will cause ebbs and and, um, matters of your um, sugars, blood sugar levels, you want to try to keep your blood sugar level stable through the day. Mm-hmm. for pregnancy other things no smoking do you know that smokers go through menopause earlier than non-smokers because it impacts wow. uh-huh that's a well-kept secret wow. so yeah so you will accelerate your rate to menopause if you are a smoker also it's just not good for you overall but it's not yeah. good for your fertility ability and in fact when i have smokers i make them stop smoking for three months before i do an egg retrieval okay yeah because it impacts the quality of eggs so no smoking Minimize alcohol. Okay. So you don't, it doesn't mean that you cannot drink. You can't drink at, if you've ovulated and had sex in a cycle you're trying to get pregnant. No amount of alcohol is safe that we know. Okay. So leading so up to So if you're actively the, like, tr- like you've tried to conceive, an attempt has been made, you're not sure if it has stuck, don't drink. Don't drink. That's okay. the answer. There's no amount of, there's something called fetal alcohol syndrome and we know that mm-hmm. it's real. And so we have to tell people as soon as you're trying in an active way, avoid alcohol. But okay. and if you're leading up to, and you're, I have people say this all the time, my sister's birthday is coming up and I'm going to be trying next month. Is it okay? It's okay for you to, to have a drink. Don't be the 
most fun girl at the party. Yeah, yeah. But you we can don't have... binge drink actively. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But you can have a drink and then sleep because we rely on the diurnal variation of the sleep-wake cycle to ovulate properly because as I mentioned earlier, that FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, remember I said it kickstarts the process to ovulation yeah. and it it's guided to different frequencies and amplitudes throughout the cycle, it gets really excited mid-cycle when you're about to ovulate. That's why when you're stressed, you can turn that whole thing off, right? Mm. So it's very important to minimize stress and sleep nicely, seven to eight hours a night. If you have a job where you do shift work, you might want to trade off your night shifts so that you get into a normal cadence of sleep and wake. Yeah. The stress is is so hard because... A, I think in North America, we're just hardwired for stress on a daily basis. And then B, if you have anxiety around fertility or if you've been trying for a bit and it's not working, like the stress is going to go up. So active stress management, I know, is so important because stress fucks with your hormones so much. But it's it's it like does. telling someone to calm down who's not feeling calm. It's very hard. So, But there are so many you know, interventions for managing stress that I think yeah. are overlooked because everyone just wants to like take a pill and feel better women and individuals trying to conceive the people that come to see us are highly functioning often mm -hmm. professional mm -hmm. and used to being in control in every aspect of life yes right this is incredibly disarming even in our best case scenario as fertility specialists ivf isn't a hundred percent in the best case mm -hmm. scenario it can be upwards of 70 percent per cycle yeah. but it's disarming so managing people's expectations and helping them to say like it's normal to feel off put Mm -hmm. um, but being in a center that recognizes that and that has the professionals that work with them. So we introduce patients to the wellness opportunities right from the get-go. So yeah. we also work with acupuncturists. We work with naturopaths. We also work with um, health uh, social workers. So as I said, it's sort of a, an integrative approach to the patient because right. when you're going through anything that has to do with reproduction where you're not absolutely in control it can be off-putting and yes. plus it's unpredictable the fear of the unknown is extremely anxiety provoking yes and while it's like at the core of anxiety yeah. right and you control your controllables but this one's not always there so you hope that you find the care provider that's empathetic that understands what you're going through mm -hmm. but it also recognizes to provide you with anticipatory guidance because it may be a completely smooth ride and super exciting. That happens. People forget yeah. to talk about that. They're like, oh, infertility is awful. It's yeah. not. We know it's one in six, 15% of the population, but we have a lot of great ways of intervening now. Yeah. And there are a lot of places like Inova that are patient-centered. And so we really try to make the patient journey as manageable as possible, no matter what the outcome is. And there is actual research that backs up the benefits of acupuncture if you're, you know, having any sort of struggles around fertility, right? Like that's a, Absolutely. I know There's some people yo-yo on it. Like, is this, you know, some woo-woo shit or is this real? But I've, I've seen the data. So I it love seems... that. Is this some woo? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there actually is science. Yeah. There's a, a big German study that looked at, now it was specifically looking at patients undergoing IVF. I'm just being yeah. completely transparent. It was not yeah. looking at IUI or timed intercourse cycles but it was looking at those undergoing the higher assisted reproductive technology. So IVF, donor eggs, gestational surrogacy, those patients benefited from mm -hmm. the addition of acupuncture. Look, we're Western trained, but there is a way, there's a place for Eastern medicine in this. Yes. And 
blood flow. Remember, I was talking about the physiology of exercise. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine if through acupuncture, you improve blood flow to your pelvic organs, your ovaries, your uterus for implantation, you can improve outcomes. And that's what that study showed. Okay. Okay. That's great. So it's not voodoo magic. It's actually based (laughs) in science. (laughs) And what about supplements and vitamins? Because yeah, People are, you know, really, I think, eager these days, honestly, myself included, to like be on a good supplement protocol. And then other people are like, this is a load of bullshit. They're just trying to take our money. But I think there are some good benefits and vitamin D deficiency can mess things up and folic acids are important. So can you walk us through what matters? So you mentioned two of them. So you did your research. (laughs) So uh, folic acid folate, I mentioned it when we were talking about diets. Mm-hmm. And North American diets are not very good. And so what we know is that when you're trying to conceive, one of the risks is open neural tube defects or neural tube defects like spina bifida if we don't have enough folic acid or folate. Okay. And so part of the normal preconception or maternal multivitamins is to include one milligram of folic acid or a thousand micrograms of folic acid. It used to be less, yeah. but now we know. So we, we used to come in at 400 micrograms, but now it's a milligram and most as soon of the, as you're ready to start trying or at what it point? should start six weeks before you conceive okay 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 so that is folic acid then you need some additional iron and additional calcium iron because pregnancy you double to triple your blood volume wow and so i know so when you so you're becoming a great big lake you might have started out as Lake Erie, but you end up as Superior. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the fish are the same, okay? Uh, and so yeah. you have, you might end up with a dilutional anemia. So you end up potentially anemic. So it's important mm. to be supplementing with additional iron, okay? Okay. So we said folic acid, iron, calcium, you're growing a skeleton. You're going to be growing somebody else's skeleton, and you also want to maintain your bones. And so calcium supplementation as well, okay? okay. From a fertility perspective... I mentioned uh, the intracellular microorganelles, the mitochondria are like the batteries of every cell. CoQ10 is a promoter of the mitochondrial energy and therefore coenzyme Q10 is good for your eggs. It doesn't necessarily energize your eggs, but it optimizes them for functioning, Mm -hmm. okay? So CoQ10 and then vitamin D because we in North America don't get a lot of sunshine. Mm -hmm. I would argue that we're mostly of vitamin D deficient. And yeah. so that usually gets screened for a baseline. And then you're supplementing, not in little amounts, but you're supplementing in the order of a thousand international units, 5,000 international units to try to get yourself up to speed. So it's important to have that tested before you just start randomly because some people need more than others. Right. Omega-3s, do they matter? Yeah. So omega-3 fatty acids, that's also good for your brain health. You're growing somebody else's brain. Um, and so, and then helping you memory through your pregnancy because progesterone makes your brain soft, <laughs> doesn't make it soft, <laughs> but there's something to be said when people talk about having progesterone brain in pregnancy, it's a real thing. Yeah. I was been pregnant three times. I lost my language ability towards wow. the end. <laughs> wow. So I know. So it's sort of funny, but anecdotal, it is not, it is a real thing. So okay. helping you to keep sharp through your pregnancy. It is wild what we go through. My God. (laughs) I know, but we're physiologically made to do it. Yes, it's true. That is true. (laughs) We're marvelously manufactured. Superheroes, truly. (laughs) Absolutely. So 
What about those who are in same-sex relationships or yeah. individuals who are single but what want children? What fertility options and processes are available? What are those timelines look, looking like? There is a kaleidoscope of family in Canada, and we recognize all of that. That's actually what ANOVA was from its inception, to be LGBTQSI2 plus inclusive. So for um, same-sex female couples, uh, sometimes patients need to come in they need to come in because they need to access sperm they don't obligately have sperm so yeah. we do what's called therapeutic donor insemination where we obtain um, in Canada it has to be Canadian compliant sperm from the sperm donor bank okay. and and then that gets inseminated coincident with ovulation and generally we do something called controlled ovarian stimulation so we manage ovulation with taking tablets so we can time someone's ovulation Okay. Another option for a lesbian couple is what we call reciprocal IVF. So both of the intended moms can be part of their family growing journey where I would stimulate one individual with mm-hmm. med- medications to grow eggs, so the fertility hormones for IVF, mm-hmm. for in vitro fertilization, remove the eggs from that person, combine them with donor sperm, and then prepare the other mom's uterus to receive them and transfer an embryo into the other mom's uterus. So everybody's part of the oh, journey wow. together. Oh, that's so cool. Right. So that's called reciprocal IVF. Yeah. Um, for single men and gay men, there are options of combined egg donation and gestational surrogacy. Okay. And what ends up happening is if there's a single dad, we use that sperm. If they are gay dads and they're sharing, we do 50% of the eggs with one dad and 50% of the eggs with another dad's sperm Mm -hmm. and create two cohorts of embryos. And then we find a gestational surrogate, someone to carry the pregnancy to rent a uterus. So then we would have the embryos all identified. And then once a gestational surrogate matches to a family, then I prepare that uterus to receive the embryo. Okay, so that's what we call egg donation and gestational surrogacy. In single men, they also require, because they don't have eggs or uterus, an egg donor and gestational surrogacy. In single women who are single moms by choice, it can be donor insemination or it can be egg donation and sperm donation IVF Ah, or just straight up IVF. Okay, that makes sense. Wow, that's great that there's so many options to include all parties. That's, That's really interesting. And for those who are struggling with infertility, could you walk Mm -hmm. us through the different treatments that are available from IVF to IUI, IVM? What are the differences there and and how would you decide upon a course of action with someone? Okay. So again, there are sort of three levels of intervention, I would say. Timed intercourse is people come to you having had sex. As a fertility specialist, I don't watch people have sex. The second level. Not a perk of the job, sadly. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I meant like, I don't have people coming through their cycles yeah. to watch them say, okay, now go home and have sex. Unless Got they're it. young and weren't ovulating and I just have to fix the ovulation. Got There's it. no point in doing that. It, as you know, it, there are so many barriers and hurdles to come over to get to me. The worst yeah. thing I can do is waste your time. Okay. Right. So the first other level of intervention is controlled ovarian stimulation combined with intrauterine insemination. What that means is I use medications to control your ovaries to put out more than one egg at a time without putting out too many so you don't Mm -hmm. become octoma. 
And then when the time comes for your insemination, we process the sperm through sperm washing with little tiny towels. I'm just kidding. We don't wash the sperm with little tiny towels. <laughs> I just picture the like Mr. Scrub little like, things coming in there. It's my joke. It's my fraternity, Dr. Jack. It's a good so, joke. Yeah, it hit. <laughs> through a, a, it's a process actually of centrifugation. It's science. And so we concentrate a pellet of active sperm. And then that sperm gets inseminated up into the uterus, um, as opposed to where sperm usually hits, which is the cervix. So it has to swim through the mucus and then all the way up the uterus and then into a tube. This way we bring the sperm right up to the management position. And then all it has to do is translocate down the tube to fertilize the eggs that are released. Okay. Okay. That's IUI? That's IUI. The thing okay. about IUI is it's not that if it's not that effective. It's not that efficient, okay. particularly in the infertile population. And mm. in a perfect scenario where someone has unexplained infertility, like eggs look fine, sperm looks fine, uterus looks fine, and they're still not getting pregnant, the likelihood of pregnancy per cycle with an IUI maximally is only 24%. The IVF that we're doing now with our success rates per cycle that are 60 50% and down and mm -hmm. with donor eggs and, and gestational surrogacy, it could be even higher at 70% because it's perfect eggs and perfect yeah. uterus. Yeah. But in people who present with infertility, we're so much better at IVF now than we were 20 years ago. When I started, I used to quote people 20 to 30% success per cycle. Wow. That's not that different from the yeah. IUI that I said at 24. But now when we're 50, 60% versus sometimes between 30 and 35 in my infertile population, the likelihood of pregnancy per cycle with an insemination is only 9 to 14%. Whoa. 86 to 91 percent failure right oh shit yeah. so though that's the second level of intervention the next level is is the big gun is the the successful one it's the one that we have a lot of variations on the theme because okay. we overcome a lot of the obstacles around infertility by going into a laboratory right right and right, you right. control the controllables so mm -hmm. that's where iui remember i said you just take the sperm and you put it up at the right time and then you cross your fingers and hope for that two-week wait. 11-11. Yeah. Make a two-week wait and you come out hopefully pregnant. If you're not pregnant, you shouldn't dwell in the land of IUIs for long. Actually, right. the most recent recommendation is that patients should do only two to three cycles of IUI mm. before stopping. If it's not working, stop. It's time to move on to in vitro. And yeah. if your data, if your AMH, your antifocal count, or your day three FSH are compromised in any way, shape, or form, you will leapfrog over IUI and go straight to IVF. And okay. that's because of the likelihood of pregnancy per cycle with IVF so far superseding anything that we can do with an IUI. Okay. And that's generally up to like 60% success with IVF? It's, no. IVF on average is 50% and less. Okay. It, can, it depends on the lab you're working with. Mm -hmm. It depends on your age. And it depends on your fertility factor. For unexplained okay. infertility, it can be that high. For right. uh, endometriosis-related infertility, it's different. For PCOS, it might mm -hmm. be different. For blocked tube, it's different. And it also depends on your data variables and the age at which you present. Got it. Okay. So I have a lot of women who are like, I exercise, I eat right, I sleep well, I do all this stuff, and I'm not getting pregnant. I don't know why. And then I say, oh, your AMH is six. And they're like, yeah, but I look great. And I'm like, your data doesn't lie. Yeah. So that's where your doctor has to be able to have the ability and transparency to explain to you the reasoning of why you're recommending 
intervention one versus intervention two. And then so IVF is retrieving eggs, sperm, creating the embryo and inserting? IVF literally means fertilization in glass in Latin. All cool things are Latin, Latin or Greek. But in vitro fertilization, fertilization in glass in a Petri dish. That's where a woman's ovary or somebody who has ovaries is stimulated. The Mm -hmm. eggs are removed from the ovaries, combined with sperm, either partner sperm or donor sperm, in a Mm -hmm. Petri dish in the laboratory. There are some additional things that we can do in the laboratory to improve outcomes depending on the compromise. So like some people make lasagna with ricotta cheese, some people make it with mozzarella, right? Like there are different things that you can do and the quality of your lab, you can have a gourmet kitchen or you can have a basic kitchen. So Mm -hmm. all of that impacts outcomes. You grow the embryos up for five days. After the five days, they're called blastocysts. A blastocyst is the final stage in embryonic development before an embryo hatches out and embeds into the lining of a uterus to grow, potentially. Right. What we also do at that stage is we can biopsy cells, freeze the embryos, and send those cells off to a genomics or a genetics lab mm-hmm. where each of the biopsied embryo samples mm-hmm. has the DNA amplified. And you can find out if the embryo is genetically intact or what we call euploid okay, or genetically abnormal or aneuploid. And that's that's, indicative of of the rest of the embryos or the majority of them? Yes. So what happens is we take a biopsy of several cells and each one of those cells has a DNA amplifier. Mm -hmm. So you get like the pooled amount or the signaling for what the chromosomes are in each one. So things like Down syndrome. Yeah. Trisomy 13, trisomy 18, Edwards, Patoad syndrome, monosomy 16, Turner syndrome. The common ones we identify just like an amniocentesis, but before you put the embryo back. Uh, so that way you can know which embryos to bank on. Again, it wow. doesn't give you an idea if it's 100%, yeah. but it definitively improves outcomes, particularly in certain age groups in the 35 to 43-year-olds. Right. Because as we get older, we're more likely to make abnormal embryos. Can you at that point, like, detect any markers for potential miscarriage if you're testing? So it depends. So so miscarriage is a tricky one. Yeah. And so as women get older, remember I said the inner functionings of the cell don't work so well. And so we're more likely to have miscarriage happen because of egg quality issues than for specific things. There are, in the younger population some identifiable specific things that you can see that are identifiable related to miscarriage. And you talked about chromosomes. So a a Robertsonian translocation or reciprocal translocation, Mm -hmm. that's a genetic thing that you can see with current pregnancy loss. Sometimes endocrine things like diabetes or thyroid issues can cause pregnancy loss. There are auto autoimmune issues. There are thrombophilia disorders. So clotting disorders. Um, sometimes infectious things, sometimes anatomical things. So that can all be worked up. If you're presenting with recurrent miscarriage and you're young, that should be worked up by a fertility specialist who understands how to do that. And some of it is overcome by doing IVF with the genetic testing and identifying the healthy embryos. But it's not always the case. I have to put that caveat in. The other thing we can do with IVF, that fancy where I said in vitro fertilization, and you do the genetic testing, Mm-hmm. If in your family you have a single gene defect, like a cystic fibrosis or whatever, thalassemias, those you can actually have a single gene disorder that you identify 
And so you create embryos, you know which ones are genetically normal, mm-hmm. and of the genetically normal embryos, you can do an additional test in the genomics lab, in the genetics lab, called PGTM, or pre-implantation genetic testing for monogenic disorder. Oh, wow. So then you can identify which of the normal genetic embryos are actually affected with illness or not. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so we're managing more and more to control the controllables mm-hmm. and to identify illness so we can prevent making a baby that's ill in life. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. You, you were mentioning that some of, of that testing and some of what you can do to, you know, in the lab increase success. Some, some labs are more basic, some are more advanced. How would a average client know what the they lab don't. situation is? That's the is? problem. We need yeah. to do a better job of differentiating. When I say that at ANOVA, at ANOVA Fertility, we have a next generation IVF lab, it's real. Yeah. I, the whole concept of this place was built around a crazy mechanical room and an embryology lab that was designed first, built around it. Wow. I even tested the air quality before I picked the place to build the lab in. But people don't understand the difference. Even yeah. physicians who are referring patients don't yeah. understand the difference. And then they also don't understand the difference of, I mean, you might be able to tell passion that I have, that we have it over for what we do. Yeah, but then the, also- the, most, the most tangible is like the empathy <laughs> and the passion and the, you know, those are somewhat easier to detect, I think. But all of those behind the scenes things, like we wouldn't even know what to ask for because who's going to say, oh yeah, our lab kind of sucks. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's hard to know. <laughs> Yeah, nobody's ever going to say that their lab sucks. But exactly. You have to be able to believe in the mission vision of innovation, technology, patient centricity, and improving outcomes. We're yeah. scientists first and foremost. We're doctors. It's important, particularly for me from a place of passion for my patients and having been a patient myself, and also being a, a woman that believes in empowering people through knowledge and not being, you know, historically how we were, we're paternal, this is how this is going to go, this is what you need to do, but not yes. having a discussion about and educating people about what it is we're doing, why we're doing it. Yeah. Science and life is data. I mean, I'm probably going to be knocking on your door because I am <laughs> 32 years old and uh, I'm not in a, in a partnership where I'll be, you know, be able to build a family um, and I have PCOS. So I would love to selfishly know what course of action you advise for people who have PCOS um, yeah. or endometriosis. I'm sure it's a different, um, you know, a different process, but PCOS and endometriosis, I think, are mm-hmm. are common concerns that that young people have. And if they're worried about their fertility, what should they be doing? So, okay, so PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, is something that's heralded by heralded by oligo little again, Latin, mm-hmm. little ovulation or anovulation, no ovulation. If you don't yeah. have irregular periods or periods that skip or are weird, it's not PCOS. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you have to have that as a first sign. And then you have one of the others. You might have multiple cysts, like little strands of pearls on your ovaries. Mm-hmm. You may have um, biochemical in your bloodstream or clinical manifesting mm-hmm. high androgens. So you might get hair on your chin, on your upper mm-hmm. lip. You might lose your hair in a male pattern balding way. Mm -hmm. You may have back acne, hair on your lower abdomen, around your nipples. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have that. And then you might have easy weight gain. Mm -hmm. And then you might also have a tendency to hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. You don't have to have- Check in every box. (laughs) (laughs) 
you don't have to have all of them, but as long as, you but I'm an overachiever. Regular, so I do. So, you do. Okay. so, so the good news is I get a lot of patients that are told, Oh, you'll never have kids because of it. That's not true. Yeah. But you will need to have someone help you ovulate in a predictable way. Mm-hmm. And then also not every PCOS patient has a ton of eggs. Sometimes PCOS patients end up presenting with some infertility too. So you yeah. need to have your data assessed. Ideally, if I could have my druthers, I would institute a system where every woman gets a fertility assessment through those blood tests at about age 28. And mm-hmm. so we see where you live, and then we can guide you accordingly. Do you want to freeze eggs? Or your fertility ability is really compromised. You need to freeze multiple cycles of eggs. Yeah. Right? If you have polycystic ovarian syndrome and you have irregular cycles, you must at least make sure that you bleed four times a year. Otherwise, the lining of your uterus can grow weeds. Like if you don't mow your lawn, you might grow some weeds. The risk is endometrial cancer. So I have to say that as my public service announcement as a doctor. Okay. So so often patients with PCOS get put on the pill. But then when you come off the pill, you might not resume ovulation. So often I get the patients with PCOS who are like, I think I'm going to get ready to have a kid, but I've never ovulated anyway. I've come off the pill. I say, don't worry, we'll take it over. And then we do that thing that I said, controlled ovarian stimulation. I give you medications to make you ovulate. Okay. And then time exposure to sperm or IVF, depending on your parameters, your data. Got it. So there okay. is an option, you know, it's not necessarily, oh, PCOS, you're going to have to do IVF. There's also, there's medication to stimulate ovulation. Same thing. Yeah, Same yeah, thing. If, as long as you respond. Yeah. And those patients that are insulin resistant might benefit from the addition of oral hypoglycemic agents like uh, metformin. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that, but only those patients who are hyperinsulinic or insulin resistant. Otherwise you don't take the metformin. Sometimes patients come in on it and don't need it. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's PCO. Endometriosis. Endometriosis is where endometrial glands and stroma, which is the inside of the uterus are located in ectopic locations in other places. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so it sort of wreaks havoc. People have the growth and shed of endometrium internally. So often patients will say it feels like glass. Like every month when they get their periods, they are incredibly painful periods and there are degrees of disease. So you can have stage one, stage two, or minimal, mild, moderate, and severe endometriosis. Those patients with moderate and severe endometriosis are those that have the most of the issues with fertility. People with pain, people can have minimal endometriosis and have tons of pain. So the two kind of lines for endometriosis are pain and people worrying about their fertility. If people have a lot of pain, they might have cysts on their ovaries and might need surgeries to remove those cysts. Don't do the surgery until you've seen a fertility specialist like myself or like one of the doctors at Inova, because if you do need IVF, IVF is the ideal intervention for endometriosis patients. That's what the literature tells us now. But um, when you see those patients, I would say, come and see the fertility specialist that will work with your endometriosis surgeon to organize either egg freezing or embryo creation if you have a partner before you have definitive surgery to manage the endometriosis. Because when you remove cysts from the ovaries, you can also remove some of those little baby primordial follicles I was talking about. The eggs that live in your ovaries were born with a certain number. So we can prematurely compromise that overhaul population and diminish your ovarian reserve just by having cysts taken out, which uh-huh. is a necessary thing to do, but we have to be strategic. Life is strategy. Mm-hmm. Fertility is a strategy too. Mm-hmm. And so we have to coordinate with that surgeon. So generally patients get referred to me by the surgeons. I'll see them for fertility. I'll take the data. I'll make a plan. 
Then we retrieve the eggs and then I send them back to their surgeon to have the definitive surgery. So that way I have something to work with before they have surgery and then it can become too late. Right. Okay. So that was PCOS and endometriosis. Bottom line, there's hope and get to a fertility <laughs> specialist if, if you want to tackle this sooner than later. Get your data, figure yeah. out your baseline variables, knowledge is power. You don't have to do anything with it. But mm -hmm. it should be your decision. You shouldn't be mm -hmm. at the mercy of your biology. Now we have things like egg freezing. Now, if you have a partner earlier, we can create embryos and test them and freeze them until you're ready to use them. Yeah. And if you have poor outcomes, the sooner we see you, the better. It's not like we can't do donor eggs in the long term. Mm -hmm. But if having your own genetic progeny is early, is important to you, make sure you test as early as possible. That's my public service announcement. Okay. That's a good PSA. <laughs> I, on that note, I feel, you know, women in my generation, myself included, are waiting longer than ever to start families for a myriad of reasons. And that's, you know, a wonderful thing that we have choice, but it can also feel really scary because above 35, as we've touched on, you're considered a geriatric pregnancy, which is geriatric. Crazy <laughs> because like that feels very young to me. I do not feel yeah. geriatric in a few years, but I get it. And there's, you know, age-related fertility decline, the, the miscarriage stats around conceiving, you know, later and later into your 30s and early 40s. So mm -hmm. what is your advice to anyone who wants to wait till later in life to have kids? So again, knowledge is power. Early screening is key. Medicine is preventative, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, look, I have to caution, egg freezing is not the panacea. It's not everybody yeah. that freezes eggs that will have a baby in the future should they have recourse to it. But at least you should be able to have the option. Mm -hmm. And remember, the sooner you do it, the better. So the sooner mm -hmm. you book in to have an assessment about whether you're a candidate for egg freezing or not, the better. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, under age 30, it takes about five eggs that have been frozen to make a baby. Okay. For example, after age 37, when you're freezing eggs, you need to freeze 10 to 12 eggs and thaw those to make one baby. Hmm. So that's how much more inefficient we become as we cross the threshold of 35 into the 37. After 40, yeah. no matter how many eggs you make, the likelihood of those eggs making a baby is lower. And that's hmm. why when I see patients after 40 who want to freeze eggs, I want to do four cycles of egg freeze. I'm like, it might be more worth your while to move to donor egg. Yeah. So that's why timeliness is key right so let's let's talk more about egg freezing because i think there are a lot of misconceptions around it and i think everyone thinks like oh it's just an insurance policy that can work for absolutely everybody but there are i think criteria that make someone maybe a good candidate for egg freezing what would that be like what who should be considering egg freezing and what would make a good candidate and what are the the realities around it yeah so you made a point before that people are deciding to freeze their eggs for a myriad of reasons mm -hmm. um you know, mainly so finances, people mm -hmm. want to be financially stable before they're thinking of, of doing, having a baby. People yeah. also like education. The more a woman or an individual with ovaries is educated, the later the age of first childbearing happens. Yeah. So the more educated women are like doctors, lawyers, Bay yeah. Street people, yeah. all of those individuals, C-suite people, are much more likely to have babies later and therefore be part of the individuals that have trouble 
getting yeah. pregnant, etc. Yeah. So if your career, socioeconomic status, finding the right person. Yeah. Historically, what I see a lot of actually as I'm freezing more and more women's eggs is women who are in a relationship that didn't continue. People who are married or they thought mm -hmm. they were going to get married and then they come to see me 32, 33, sometimes 37 after they just got divorced. They're like, I, I want to have kids. We didn't see eye to eye in that regard. So mm -hmm. I want to freeze my eggs, right? Yeah. The, so those are kind of the scenarios. There's no cookie cutter approach to egg freezing either because mm -hmm. it depends on the data and it depends on the age at which the woman is presenting, what kind of a protocol you'll write for her and how many cycles of egg freezing she should need. Because right. what the literature shows is we should be freezing between 15 and 30 eggs, not stratified by age. So regardless of age, wow. to have a good insurance plan in the future should we have recourse to those eggs? Right? And that might take many, many cycles, which I think is exactly. another thing that a lot of people don't realize. Don't, yeah, so under yeah. 35, under 30, really, we're less likely to see patients who need to do that batching approach or having multiple cycles mm -hmm. by virtue of their baseline data. Remember that AMH, antifossil yeah. count, and FSH. Sometimes we're surprised. Mm -hmm. People come in at age that I saw two last week, a 26-year-old and 28-year-old with really bad ovarian reserve parameters. Um, and who I say generally, I don't recommend more than one cycle for patients like you because I expect the data to be better. But you're yeah. presenting like this, so I have to believe what I see objectively to mm -hmm. inform my clinical recommendation and the therapy that ensues, right? Okay. And so you're absolutely right when you said sometimes when we need multiple cycles. That leads me to that part of your question where you said, like, is it for everybody? Can everybody do it? Does it have the same outcome? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. And historically, because we couldn't freeze eggs and thaw them and fertilize them very well. It was the slow cool process. There's a lot of water in egg cells. And so they would implode or explode through that process. Mm -hmm. Now there's the rapid flash freezing called vitrification. It's a process by which we can rapidly freeze eggs. So now freezing your eggs is no longer just for patients who are going to undergo surgery or, or chemotherapy for cancer, etc. Mm -hmm. Now it's available to the masses, but still it needs to be guided. Yeah. in the basic parameters of of common sense as well. Because if someone's ovarian reserve is really bad, there's no sense, particularly after the age of 37, to be freezing those eggs in multiple batches because it's sort of garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. And so that's why you have to hope that you have the transparency and clarity from the physician. And as much as you being the right candidate for it, I will often tell patients, this is not right for you. You need to think about donor eggs in the future. Yeah. But, but I have to say that the majority of the women coming in who are empowering themselves through this understanding, whilst it's not the panacea, at least it allows them an option, right. should be given the opportunity to do that in a timely way. And so I'm all about systems and maybe yeah. we need to work at systems to get women screened earlier, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere between 25 and 30, maybe parents are going to be like, this is your college present, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want yeah. legacy. So this is the new down payment. Fuck homes. We're giving you uh, <laughs> insurance policy on kids. <laughs> insurance policy. Well, but the yeah. good news is it's changing. There's yeah. some, there are benefits now. More and more companies are understanding that having a productive female yeah. population of star employees yeah. actually means if they're delaying things for career that you should be helping to flip the bill for it. So benefits yeah. programs, and I speak to benefits providers, are now onboarding fertility benefits 
for their clients, for their employees, for their portfolios. That's great. And, because it is, it is expensive. It is it like is. A, a, a pretty big investment. And I believe, at least with the Ontario government, that it's not really covered. It's only covered if you're pursuing IVF and you've actively been trying and then you get some certain coverage. But for pro, like for proactive planning, there doesn't seem to be coverage. No, egg freezing is not covered unless you're about to undergo cancer for fertility preservation. So that's where it's covered in the funding program. And that's in the province of Ontario. I can't speak to all the other provinces, though yeah. there are other provinces where there is coverage. Elective egg freezing is still in the realm of... Uh, elective so yeah, you would yeah, be yeah. personally funding or you have benefits and the thing is in canada the median coverage amount is about sixty six hundred dollars yeah the average cost of an ivf cycle or a, an egg freezing cycle can be like eight to twelve thousand dollars and medications can be on top of that know your employer know your yeah. benefits plan like we be strategic about your employment surrounding this uh, always be strategic i don't know if i've said anything about strategy but always be strategic and so the age in which you freeze the eggs matters in terms of egg quality and everything in terms of when you are ready to implant them and, and then go through the ivf in the future does that age matter a lot or not really not really i mean a uterus I can make a menopausal uterus pregnant if I prime it with the right hormones. It's like a wow. garden that I can prep for planting. Wow. Yeah, I mean, historically, they've done uterine transplants from cadavers into women who didn't have uteruses and grew wow. babies in them. Okay, That's so incredible. a uterus is a fancy garden to carry a pregnancy. No baby's been born in an incubator. Babies yeah. are born from uteruses. However, the tenant, the quality of the tenant matters. Mm. And the younger... The and what the younger you are when an embryo is created, or an egg is frozen, the better functional ability it has. That predicts your success for outcomes per cycle based on when that egg was frozen or those embryos were made. Okay, and the stats are generally under thirty-five. How many eggs frozen might so, yield a child? Five to one when you're under thirty-five. Okay. But then over, actually, it's under 30. That's what the, yeah, yeah, uh, the a, yeah. yeah. So, but then at 37 to 40, what you expect, you need to freeze 10 to 12 eggs to make a baby. Okay. Okay. And that's why we call it, well, I don't call it geriatric. Somebody else said geriatric, but we're considered yeah. advanced maternal age again. That's a nicer way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. I sort of like the medical terminology yeah. better than the geriatric, but, but that's when our eggs, start to work less well from a reaction perspective right right from beginning to retrieval the process would you say it's about a month with with pills with injections with like not a month how long would it be it's the follicular phase of your cycle remember i said it can vary a little bit but it's generally 14 days so Ah. i generally say it's 10 to 12 days of injectable gonadotropins the medications that are tropic to your gonads which are your ovaries to grow the eggs And those are self-injections generally. Self-injections, subcutaneous, based on the insulin technology. It's like you dial a dose in the pen, you clean it off with an alcohol swab and you self-inject or your partner can inject or your friend Mm -hmm. can inject, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it's punctuated by visits to the clinic so that you can have an ultrasound and blood tests so that the physician can decide, do we dial up the dose? Do we dial down the dose? Or do we leave the dose the same? 
how the ovary and, reacting and yeah. exactly and everybody's different again right yeah and so then after the 10 to 12 days once the eggs we reach a critical size where we believe that the majority of the group is mature mm-hmm. we give you a shot to trigger the final step in the maturation of these eggs so that when we go in with the needles we aspirate the follicular fluid the fluid inside each of those follicles that you see on ultrasound yeah. and retrieve the eggs therein and that okay. goes into the laboratory the next day someone will call you and let you know how many are m2 how many m2 phased eggs you have frozen okay and so that also serves to guide for patients who haven't been programmed who have like borderline not sure if they need two cycles or one cycle once you have those eggs frozen you'll know how many and then you'll be able to say actually you need to do another cycle of freezing based on how you perform because it's okay. not always that clear at the beginning. Okay, that makes sense. And it's a different situation with embryos, with freezing embryos. So this is for freezing eggs. That's for with freezing e- eggs. They're not fertilizing them. Are like higher, um, higher chances of of success. Is that? Well, case? we have more experience with embryos mm-hmm. and of, of freezing and thawing embryos. We also know we can test them genetically, so they have been further differentiated, so we know which ones are better, mm-hmm. and we just are. In that regard, if someone particularly has poor ovarian reserve, specifically, so bad parameters, bad ADH, bad antifocal count, a high FSH, those individuals should consider creating embryos mm-hmm. um, by virtue of the fact that we know the quality of their eggs will be compromised early on. Yeah. Right? And it's harder yeah. to then warm an egg and fertilize it and grow it again after we know at baseline the parameters yeah. are not so good. Okay, that's all really good information to know. Some very good myth busting around egg freezing because yeah, it's there's so much going around. It's hard to know, you know, what the source I of know. truth is. So very helpful. And lastly, I just wanted to kind of ask about your experience as an IVF patient yourself. And I know that was one of the driving forces behind opening Anova. What yeah. was the most challenging part of of IVF and your fertility journey? And what learnings would you pass on to anyone who's going through this right now? For me, it was how disarming it is to not be in control. That I like, I try to reassure patients like it's normal to feel not normal, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. you're doing everything that you can do. You're eating right. You're exercising. You're trying to sleep. You're minimizing alcohol. You're not smoking. You're taking your injections, and every time you go in, you're like wondering what your ovaries are going to look like, and yeah. you just you feel completely out of control. It's a it's not the greatest feeling, but, uh, you know, as I was building it over, I remember going to my retrievals every single time my eggs were coming out, my vagina pointed the room where somebody else's head was sticking out of the embryologist. And I'm like, gosh, if I ever do one of these things, I'm going to make the vagina point the other way. Yeah. So the other side of the room, so that the only person seeing bits and pieces is the physician that must see the bits and pieces. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, some or, just like a bit more care and respect and consideration given to the people that are going through this. Like we're not moving cattle through a freaking factory. Like these are humans. A million percent. And the other part is the grit. So like I had three cycles. The first cycle I got pregnant on the first transfer. Well, he's 18 now, believe it or not. And then, you know, I had did eight transfers after that that didn't work. Wow. It was a long time ago. They were blastomere staged embryos. So they were day three. They were not differentiated. We didn't have PGTA. So it was a different time of idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I was like, forget it. We'll just make more embryos. So then I had a second cycle. I hyperstimulated, torsed my ovary and had emergency surgery. So got nothing out of that. Oh, fuck. 
And so then I was like, I'm never doing this again. I just, it's too much. And then my partner at the time was like, let's do it one more time. We don't want him to be a single kid. And I'm like, no, you're right. Let's do this again. And then I did it. My embryos were such not great looking embryos. And the embryologist at the time was like, oh, this embryo is crap. I don't know why we do. You need to start again. No problem, doctor. I'm like, look, it's what I got. Let's put it in. Yeah. She's She's 15. Wow. And then another one was made at the time and I put him back right before Obama's inauguration. Wow. And I remember thinking, this is never going to work. But there I was. But he's in like, yes, Washington, you can. <laughs> in Wash- That's right. In Washington, D.C., peeing on a stick from Rite Aid, being like, I can't be pregnant. Frozen transfers never work on me. So I relate to all wow. of the emotions. And I can say that grit, I know it sucks. And I know it's expensive. And you feel hormonally crazy. And you feel like you can't do anymore. But when it bears fruit, the grit was worth it. Mm. Oh, it's got me emotional. That's beautiful. I'm so happy for you that, that it worked out the way it did. And it's Thank it gives you. us all hope. So, yeah, the grit is, yeah. is the grit and the hope. Important. Absolutely. Make sure that your physician is a good match for you. And ask the questions. Now, physicians are used to being able to explain it. It's yeah. no longer you get what you get and you don't get upset. You can say something for yourself. Mm, yeah. Advocate for yourself. You have agency over what happens to you. Yeah, that's really important. That self-advocacy. And just being informed about our own bodies because, oh, my God, I feel, to your point at the beginning, we're just trained our whole lives of how to avoid pregnancy. And then all of a sudden, we're like, I don't know shit about my body. And I don't know how this works. And that's wild. Which is why I think I'm still talking about we have to change systems because Again, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. If we're going to empower women, we have to at least figure out how to get them to care and to great care in a more timely way. Yes. Oh, I love that. That's so great. I've taken up so much of your time. I have one last question for you, which is what is one thing that you wish you had learned in school? Because our podcast mission is really to to find those gaps and to help people and educate people. So what's, what's the thing that you think was missed? Well, I went to private girls school. I drank the Kool-Aid. It's like, we will empower each other. We'll be the greatest, the next CEOs, break the glass ceilings, synergize, align with other people, build on other people's genius, surround yourself by smart women. Mm -hmm. And when I got into the universe, it didn't necessarily turn out that way. I Mm. hope this is a call to women to align ourselves with each other. Yeah. And and build on each other's geniuses, not necessarily to be afraid of each other, but yeah. to amplify what it is that we bring to the table together. Because together, if we all banded together, we would take over the universe for sure. hundred <laughs> percent. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. I'm right there with you. Thank you so much for being a part of that mission that you just spoke to. Like you're empowering women, you're empowering all people and you're helping them, you know, it was one of the most important pieces of their lives which is their fertility journey so thank you so much for what you do and for being so generous with your time and your wisdom Uh, I think this is going to help a lot of people I really appreciate it it's a pleasure thank you for having me it was super fun so there you have it guys thank you so much for listening if you like what you heard today it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe and leave a comment or a rating and we'd love it if you would share this with your friends by screenshotting the episode and sharing it on social by tagging at teach me how to adult podcast and dm us with any topics or guests you'd like to hear on the show see you next time bye, bye.